Welcome to Expanding Your Faith with Bishop Gregory Godsey and Father Matthew Schnabel. Expanding Your Faith looks at modern faith and spirituality questions, as well as conducts interviews with movers and shakers in different and varied faith traditions. Our broadcast is brought to you by the hardworking staff at the Office of Communications and Media Relations in the Old Catholic Churches International. Stay tuned as we work on expanding your faith. Well, hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Expanding Your Faith. Tonight we are talking to Trotty, who will be uh, discussing with us Buddhism. As always, Father Matt is here with us. Hello. And he will um, be helping us uh, stump Trotty tonight questions about Buddhism. So how are you today, Trotty? I'm doing very well. And you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. We're glad to have you here. So, let's start off with a very hard question to begin with. Sure. And that is, um, tell us a little about yourself and what inspired you to move towards Buddhism. Well, my name is Trotty. It actually is Trotty. <laughs> um, I work in the medical field. I do a few things in the medical field, but the, the main thing that I do is uh, DNP. I'm a nurse practitioner. I moved towards Buddhism because of the philosophy behind it, um, kind of made understanding in my mind uh, the way it is. So Buddhism was a, a correct choice for me. So there you go. What other uh, religious paths did you follow prior to uh, Buddhism? I know Buddhism's not a religion, it's philosophy, but what other um, religious and faith practices did you know before that? Uh, I was actually raised Christian within the Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, not the Latter-day Saints, but just the, the plain Church of Christ. Um, I saw a lot of things in there that I did not like. Um, you can't do this, you can't do this, and you can't do that, or whatever. And, I, you know, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, um, I didn't see that. It was all up into interpretation, and the interpretations that I saw I did not like. Mm -hmm. So, I did try the Hindu. Um, the Hindu was... Um, quite out there for me. Um, I didn't kind of satisfy the, the learning brain that I have. So, um, Yankrik is a little bit too mystical for me. Um, I know Buddhism does have a mystical side, but um, the metaphysical side, but I'm not really into that part of it. And the Yankrik was a little bit more into that than I cared to be in. Very good. Stump number one. Stump number one. <laughs> So we, um, we're we going to hear from you in a few weeks about Satanism, so you spent some time yes. in, in that practice as well, I take it. Yes, I did. Um, I first got into that, I was looking at the occult, actually, and what the occult meant, and the paranormal within that. Mm -hmm. So you get into the paranormal, and you think of demons, you think of things coming back, and haunting you or whatever. Um, I'm deaf in the ear, so I never heard the things that people heard. It would be demonic. So I'm to the occult side, and the occult side was um, terrifying. <laughs> I didn't I didn't like it very much. Mm -hmm. But the Satanism side, 
didn't believe in the demon side of it per se. And so I got into that and got into the, the Satanic Bible, read that, and that kind of made sense as well. However, it didn't make all that much sense to me. If everyone is just out for themselves, then how does everyone else live? And how does that kind of jive with the practice that I do? So, give us kind of a um, fifth grader overview of what Buddhism is about. Buddhism is about um, kind of like the history. Mm-hmm. So, yes. um, Buddhism was started by uh, a gentleman called Sarvajitan, and he was born right around 500 BC. Um, he was a son of a prince, or a son of a king, and he was a prince, and he built, lived a very sheltered life. He was very educated, he was very intelligent, and the, the legend has it that when he was born, a scepter came up and said that he was going to change the world. And his father did not like that, mm-hmm. being a king, so he kept him sheltered and kept him inside the kingdom. So when he ventured outside of the kingdom, he saw death, he saw sickness, he saw poverty, and then he saw a monk, um, on, each on different nights, I should say. And the monk had talked to him and said, you know, you should leave your um, life of luxury and go out into the world and be a worldly man and try to save people that way. And so he did this. And so in his scene, in his sights that he saw, um, he wanted to come up with a way to alleviate um, people mm-hmm. of their suffering. And he lived in the base of the Himalayan mountains in what we now know as uh, Nepal. He set up under, he, well, he actually went to the Yankee tradition and mastered that and decided that was not for him. He went to the Hindu, mastered that and decided that was not for him as well, as a couple of others. So he sat down, uh, supposedly underneath the Buddha tree, and he started to meditate on upon this, and he came up with. Um, a series of events that would be able to alleviate uh, humans of their suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, he came up with the four noble truths: um, the truth of suffering, um, the truth of cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and then the truth of the path that frees us from that suffering, which leads us into the eightfold path. This Eightfold Path is basically teachings or viewpoints, you could say, that help us on the journey into attempting to relieve uh, humans from that suffering. Mm-hmm. And it's um, the right understanding, the right thought, the right speech, the right action, the right livelihood, the right effort, the right mindfulness, and the right concentration. That would lead us, if you do all of these things, that would lead us into a state of nirvana through meditation. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of people have this misconception that Buddhism is a religion, but it's really more of a philosophy. Um, can you kind of speak about what the difference is? Religion usually has um, a deity that is ahead of that. So, like Christianity has God, Muslims have God, Jewish have God as well. When you have a philosophy 
is more of a teaching or a learn stage of being able to you know what I mean it's, it's more of a teaching I guess you would say I guess mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to be able to say this is how you should look at things and how you should study things and able to um, learn yes and learn about yourself and learn about you know life and things of that nature so Buddhism in itself for the most part for most Buddhists do not believe that Buddha was a god or Buddha was a deity um, not until you get into different type of schools um, do they actually believe that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are familiar with the um, largest, one of the largest groups, I guess, in the United States is probably SGI. Is that correct? Or SGA, um, yes. Buddhism. SGA. Um, <clears throat> that's kind of like Sindhu, isn't it? Or Sin Buddhism? Yeah. Um. Shin, Shin, I believe, is a part of the Pure Land um, teachings. Pure Land and Zen and Chan are probably the three biggest um, Buddhist um, thought processes within the United States. Mm -hmm. So, Pure Land is more... How should we say? They believe that there are, there are many, many paths to enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the most fundamental teachings of the concept of um, uh, impermanence um, versus uh, dependent or in, impermanent um, dependent originalization versus independent originalization or non-dependent originalization so, and it's, it's basically the, the one of the most fundamental parts of Buddhism uh, for pure land Zen and Chan are pretty much one and the same so when it was developed in India and, and, and Buddhism became the formal school of thought mm -hmm. it, there's a person named Buddha Rama who crossed the Himalayas into China mm -hmm. and within China he set upon a, a monastery and just set Supposedly, he sat in a, cave, in a cave for I don't know how many years, and his image is burnt in this side of the cave. Never seen it. Never. I don't have no idea if it exists or not. But you know, there it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he went into a monastery and he started teaching the Buddhism that India had. And he noticed that these monks were lazy; they would fall asleep during meditation. And that's where you begin the 18 movements of Buddharama, which in turn started Chan and what we know now as Shaolin. Mm -hmm. Upon that, as it spread throughout China, China had Taoism and Tao uh, faith already established within the, within the country. So mm -hmm. within Chan, you have a little bit of Tao that is mixed in with all of this. And that's where the Tao Te Ching becomes very important to both the Tao and the, the Buddhist. As it crossed the, the, the waters, it went into Japan, in Japan, we know it as Zen, which is basically the same, just a little bit difference between uh, what kind of teachers that you have. So those are the three main, or there's also uh, Tibetan Buddhism that is becoming up and coming in, in the United States as well. And that's more hardcore Buddhism right there. I mean, that's the upper echelon of the school of the Mahayana thought, or the great vehicle.
Yeah. So now, which yeah. uh, which version of Buddhism do you practice primarily? Uh, I primarily am Zen and Chan. Okay. Um, I did live in a monastery uh, in the lower part of uh, China in the southern province of Fukin. I studied in a Shaolin temple there. I am not anywhere near a Shaolin warrior. Don't get, don't get me started on that. I worked in the kitchen, I cooked, and I yeah. studied. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I got my I got my real big taste there. So, and you're a monk. A yes, I am. I have been ordained in two traditions, and um, Chan and Zen. So, how did that come about? What process did you have to go through to to become a monk? Um, you have to take well. You have to study, mm -hmm. and you the abbot of the monastery or the abbot of whatever tradition that you're in has to oversee your studies. Mm -hmm. um, once he is satisfied, basically, that you know Buddhism and you are able to teach the Dharma, then he will give you a certificate saying that you are able to and then you are ordained mm -hmm. that way. The second tradition, um, when I came back to the States, I was lacking. There wasn't a primary place for me to go. There wasn't a primary place to say, this is where I study, this is what I do. So I found some outside people who also believed in the monk process. And so we got together, and the abbot of that um, actually ordained me in that tradition as well. And so that was thrown in Chan, Zen, and a little bit of pragmatism within that. So. Not a little, I should say, a lot of pragmatism. So. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. So what does your daily meditation uh, ritual look like? Daily. Um, some mornings I, I get up and meditate for about 30 minutes. Sometimes I'm a little lax in that because I have a crazy schedule and everything. In the evening I always meditate for at least at least 30 minutes, but I try to do an hour. And then on the weekends, if I ever have it off, um, I usually do in between four, uh, three and four hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I attempt to, I should say. So what would you say to someone who's looking to um, learn more about Buddhism to begin practicing a, a Buddhist philosophy? There, I believe that there's two types of Buddhists. There is a book Buddhist who reads all the books that they can and then proclaims that they're Buddhists. Then there's practicing Buddhists, and there's two types of practicing Buddhists. But, but try to find the temple or try to find something around that will teach you about Buddhism. Uh, there's usually a couple of sanghas or organizations around that will have um, meditations, they will have book readings, they will have guest speakers come in. And that's, you know, really gives you a, a, a quick understanding, um, for lack of better wording, into Buddhism and what it's about. So do you find meditation to be rather easy for you now that you've done it for a while? Or is it something that you still struggle with all of the outside? <laughs> um, after 20 years of doing this, most of the time, I can calm my mind down enough to be able to go into a nice meditation. Um, there are days where, oh damn, I just can't get my mind anywhere near where I want it to be. I understand. 
Nirvana is way off to the left and I'm way off to the right and I'm screaming so <laughs> so someone asked a little while ago if you've achieved Nirvana you know I have not achieved Nirvana um, I think Nirvana is very rare to achieve um, some just believe that it is a Buddhist heaven I believe it's just a state of mind um, I have not achieved that um Will I ever achieve it? Fuck if I know. I, I can't tell you if I could or not. I could attempt to over and over, but I don't know if I would ever achieve that. I understand. So that brings me to a good spot to uh, ask um, this question. What are the uh, Buddhist ideals of death and the afterlife? It depends. I'll get to that in a minute. That was Father Matt's question, by the way. He was going to ask that. (laughs) What was it again? What is the Buddhist philosophy on death and the afterlife? That depends on what tradition you actually um, believe in. Okay. Um, The Tibetans actually have a Tibetan Book of the Dead. And they believe that you go through different realms before you actually... um, your consciousness actually leaves and goes into a different body. Mm-hmm. Depending on the works that you do, because the, the Tibetans believe in reincarnation. So, the works that you do, you go through different realms, and then you become a different person, or you become a different consciousness uh, within the works that you have done. Personally, in Zen, um, once I die, I'm more improved. I'm going to feed the trees, I'm going to feed some deer running by, and elk, you know, that kind of thing. I do believe in energy, um, as it were, chi. Your energy goes out into time. We only see time as a, a linear plane. So once the linear plane is set, sorry, I'm going to pull out one of my, one of my uh, lightsabers here. So we look at it as a linear plane. What happens up here in time and what happens down here in time is totally we don't know. So I believe that our consciousness or our energy can exist within time space that we don't know about. But I don't have any experience of that, so I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard to tell because no, none of us have really experienced it and come back to tell about it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Molly would like to know, what are Buddhist thoughts on the LGBTQIA community? Um, a lot of the schools I don't know about. Um, I know Zen, Chan, from what I understand, and from my own personal point of view. The purpose in life is to become happy and, and to alleviate suffering. If being gay being trans or, or whatever you have within this community makes you happy then who is to say it's not for you um, happiness in itself relieves suffering in a way that you are able to do things much better than you were if you were unhappy mm-hmm. so if you are gay trans whatever if that makes you happy, you're going to do more in life for your community and for the LGBTQI community. Then go for it. 
Excellent. So, um, are there any um, in-time type of teachings that Buddhism, Buddhist philosophy has? In time? Kind of like uh, eschatology in Christianity. Uh, The end of the world, the end of civilization, the end of life. When it ends, it ends. (laughs) So Spider had a question for you. Um, What dietary restrictions are there in Buddhism? So it depends on what kind of school um, that you're part of. Um, all Buddhists, for the most part, take uh, five precepts. Um, and the five precepts are do no harm or killing living things. Uh, do not take things unless they are freely given to you. Um, don't deceit a life. Lead a decent life, I should say. I'm sorry. Um, and don't speak unkindly or tell lies. And then don't abuse drugs or alcohol. So if you take the first precept, don't kill living things. Most animals, of course, are living so, with that precept, they will not kill an animal to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I'm, I don't subscribe to that. I, I love steak. I love chicken. You know, whatever. So, <laughs> useless veggies. <laughs> so, um, it also depends on, you know, the country that you're in. Um, the Shaolin warrior monks were actually given permission to eat um, beef or eat uh, meat from the emperor so they didn't have to actually do the first precept. So it depends on how strict you are about that and and what your actual beliefs are in that. I believe that the intent behind killing drives what you do. If you are hungry and you kill a deer, the intent behind that is not to gain its antlers or to trophy wise it Mm -hmm. it is for food to keep you alive or to sustain you so kind of goes back to the precept in Christianity because you know Jesus and his disciples were walking through the field plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath and they said you're breaking the Sabbath and you know Jesus scolds them and says well you know if you're hungry what do you do you sit and starve (laughs) right right so um I find it kind of funny that, you know, with the first precept of do no harm, not killing living animals to eat. But as we all know, the Buddha died eating beef stew yeah. from food poisoning. Yeah. So even he uh, didn't think that that necessarily meant, you know, right. not to eat, just do no harm to others, essentially. Right. Yeah. Um, Molly asked, what are common assumptions made about Buddhism? Common assumptions are, one, all of them are poor. Most Buddhist um, monks or priests do live in a monastery, and they take a life of poverty. They do take a life of celibacy. Um, I am neither. So some of the assumptions are they always wear robes wherever they go. Um, I do not wear robes to work. I wear scrubs. Um... Um, I only wear uh, my robes when I'm actually at a, uh, an official function, mm-hmm. whether I'm doing a wedding, whether I'm at a, a funeral. Um, rituals, um, some rituals I do go to. Um, I do wear my robes then, but otherwise I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Buddhists are always good. Not all Buddhists are always all good, so... <laughs> Look at Pol Pot. Um, just sorry. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever heard of the Buddhist monk punks? Mm-mm. No. No? Um, these are Buddhist monks who actually go and they teach. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're kind of like me. Um, I'm tatted up. Uh, I drink. I smoke. I cuss. I do whatever, but I'm actually Buddhist. I follow the Buddhist tenets the best I can. Um, all of the precepts that I've taken, 257 of them, some of them are really good. Some of them are just... Yeah, I don't follow them. So I get that. I think the same is with Christianity. Same is true of Judaism. Same is true of a lot of religions. There are some precepts that fit you well. Others, well... <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. So Spider says, what about fasting? What about fasting? Do Buddhists fast? Um, is it a requirement? <laughs> it, it, um, again, depending on what school of thought you are in, some do fast. It is a requirement of them. I do not fast. If I'm hungry, I do eat. Mm-hmm. Unless I'm doing a weightlifting program where I'm trying to cut then I will fast, but that's only for my own well-being. It's not for any type of philosophical uh, being. I understand that. Um, I'm very I'm very pragmatic when it comes to Buddhism, so... I, I get that. <laughs> so, are there any kind of, like, special holidays or celebrations or feast days within Buddhism? There are many. Um too many for me to actually remember um i do know that i do do the coming to refuge mm-hmm. um where you kind of renew yourself and you come to the refuge um the three refuges of, of or the four refuges of buddhism i do do that mm-hmm. um outside of that i don't like so some religion or buddhist sects do um celebrate the birth of the buddha mm-hmm. um i do not Mm-hmm. I care about his teachings. I don't care when he was born, personally. So, but yes, th- there are many religious, um, or not religious, but you know, religious celebrations within Buddhism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one of the thoughts that comes to mind because it's one of the most iconic photos of Buddhism, and this is this is delving rather deep, uh, I know, but is the. Um, picture that we see, and I believe it was from Vietnam, of a Buddhist monk uh, uh, setting himself on fire. And, you know, there have been many uh, over the years that have self-immolated in protest to draw awareness to various uh, uh, (coughs) injustices or uh, whatnot in in society. What in the Buddhist philosophy brings them to that point of self-immolation? Let's take um, World War II, okay. the Kamikaze pilots. Mm-hmm. Most of these people were Buddhists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what happens when your country is being overwhelmed, your country being under, uh, is it being attacked? What higher gift or higher um, 
thing can you do than to give your life for what you believe in? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in reincarnation, you would come back as another human being. So lighting yourself on fire to give the statement of this is unjust also gives prelude into you coming back as another human being, mm -hmm. which is the highest blessing that you can have as coming as a sentient being. Mm -hmm. Did you have Would I do that? Um, no. But my thought of reincarnation is totally different. I understand. So <laughs> tell us about your uh, view on reincarnation. My, my view on reincarnation. Um, when you look at Christianity, when someone's being baptized, you are, are essentially being uh, reincarnated from sinned to unsinned, right? Mm -hmm. When you go into Buddhism and you sit down and you meditate and you take the precepts, you are actually becoming unlightened to enlightened. So that is the rebirth of your um, energy or you into something that's totally different. Um, I have heard of people say that they have known about their previous lives. I have not experienced that. So for me to say that reincarnation is actually that something happens where the energy from one person proceeds into a different person, I have no personal experience of that. So... That leads me to another question, a little bit off the topic, but on the topic. And we've discussed that before, and I'd like to get you on the podcast talking about it, because I think it's fascinating. Sure. Um, you know, there are people out there who believe that when we die, our energy is released out into the world, out into uh, space and time. And yes. uh, that when we come back or when another person is born not necessarily we come back but another person is born sometimes some of that energy is drawn from that pool of energy and that's why you have some of these children born who can immediately begin playing violins or musical instruments or who automatically seem to have insight into science and mathematics that they shouldn't have that knowledge of Right. Um, what's your thought on that? What is your belief on that? <clears throat> well, it's like I said, when, when you die, I believe that time and space kind of correlate with each other. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily hold you into one uh, realm, either front or back of the previous time that you're at. Mm -hmm. So our energy can go from the past into the future into the present. Mm -hmm. If you think about how many times we breathe in and out and how much oxygen you actually release from the inhale to the exhale, you release what, 80% of what you inhale? Mm -hmm. So you're actually inhaling something that Stephen Hawking mm -hmm. breathed out or Cleopatra or Caesar, or Einstein, mm -hmm. or the Buddha himself. So that kind of energy is kind of like that to go through throughout space and time. Mm -hmm. 
because we know time is linear from our perception from a 3D image of it. It's linear, but it happens up here, it happens down here. And time, or the, the timeline, is unknown. Mm-hmm. And that's where time is, is, or our energy, can kind of circulate throughout the time, through our, throughout the timeline. Kind of like the concept uh, that we utilize in amateur radio, and that is, you know, a radio wave has an FM modulation in the center, we have an upper sideband and a lower sideband. And right. so we will utilize, you know, one of those two upper or lower sidebands in some cases. So what you're essentially saying is that we live in this FM band in the center yes. of the radio wave, whereas we're not aware of what's going on in the upper or lower sideband portions of that wave. That is a great analogy, yes. Perfect. Yes. Perfect. Spider wants to know, do you feel everything has an energy? Yes. <laughs> the trees, the... the <coughs> okay, if you, if you look at it from a scientific um, point of view, right? All matter has energy. Yes. Now, whether it's quick or whether it's slow is different. If you take water, if you just release water from the tap, it has energy flowing down or flowing down um, the river, right? But if you slow it down enough, it becomes ice. If you speed it up enough, it becomes um, vapor. So everything has energy, whether it's slow or fast, whether it's still, you still have energy within all matter. So does everything have energy? Yes, it does. So you were showing off your uh, Jedi lightsaber a few minutes ago. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I I want to interject this that uh we were yes that we were um we were watching an episode of Cosmos the other night. Yes. And uh you know, I love Neil deGrasse Tyson. Dr. Tyson is an excellent teacher. And one of the uh, things that he talked about um that goes to this answer is um, and and we think of it as a term from Star Wars, but midichlorians, midichlorians that are actually we've learned uh, or we've assigned the name to is this um, process and network of exchanging of information through energy between every living being, whether it be plants and trees and animals. And so if you look at the Earth, the, the, there's this network of energy right under the yeah. ground, running through everything. And um, Star Wars kind of has coined the term, I think that it was stolen from Star Wars to name these, uh, or vice versa, one of the two. But this concept of um, this energy that kind of flows through all creation, all of life. Oh, are you talking to Mike at the Myco level? Yeah. The, oh, okay. Yeah, that he was talking about the other night. The Myco Life filter or the Myco Life network? Well, he called yeah. it midichlorin yeah. uh, network, midichlorin. and um, which is a term, of course, that's used in Star Wars quite heavily. Mm-hmm. But um, so now through meditation, and, and a segue question. Um, are do you believe that we're able to interact with that other energy in meditation? I feel that 
yes, that is possible. Very much possible. Um, I, I do believe that the state of Nirvana would be part of that as well, as part of that energy. Mm-hmm. That flows through everything, yes, yes. So some Buddhists are able to um, meditate to the point that they're able to raise and lower their body temperature. They're able yes, to yes. survive in, in harsh conditions. Uh, uh, to bring another television series into it, uh, The Search for God, that um, 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 Morgan More Freeman uh, hosts, um, actually spoke about this and uh, interviewed a Buddhist monk who is able to sit inside a sub-zero freezer for hours on end in meditation with his body temperature never dropping, never experiencing hyperthermia. Yes. Um, have you personally been able to witness this or, or do anything of that nature yourself? <clears throat> Living in the area that I live in, it is most definitely sub-zero temperatures. <laughs> um, <laughs> at least five months out of the year. Yes. And I have actually tried to do this um, a few times during the winter. Once you get, even the first few times, you are absolutely freezing and you can't do it. But, you know, you take it five minutes longer each time that you do it, and your body actually becomes adapt to that. It is also how you perceive the cold within your mind. Mm-hmm. So there's, there was this uh, TV series uh, back in the 70s, 80s, um, with uh, David Kane. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what, what was the name of that? Kung Fu? Yeah, I think it was. He was able to sit in a box that was out in the um, desert. Um, like, what What was it? Five days, six days? And so when the temperature rised, he thought about cool. And when the temperature dropped, he thought about heat. And it's kind of like that same concept of what does your mind do? And so, like you say a lot of the time, the, bi- the mind-body connection is absolutely crucial within our life today but also what you do every day so if you want to perceive calmness you have to have to think about calmness in order for your body to have calmness within your meditation very good answer thank you spider says do buddhists believe in medicine or healing herbs and power Um, um a lot of the the chinese believe absolutely believe in healing herbs mm-hmm. uh, they believe in what's called uh, meridians or submeridians which is the energy that flows through your body which is the chi um, being in the medical profession I absolutely believe in medications <clears throat> um, <clears throat> but I also believe in holistic healing I, I, I hate to give someone just a medication and say go on your way mm-hmm. yeah I would, I would rather talk to them about, okay, what are you experiencing within your anxiety instead of just giving you something for anxiety without saying you have to control your anxiety from your own mind down and let the medications aid you within that thinking that you have. Mm-hmm. So I do believe in an OD or um, a holistic approach to medications and medicine. But I also believe that medicines are there for a purpose, as well as herbs and the power of your own mind. Yes, absolutely. 
So one of the newer uh, practices we're seeing kind of spread across the country, and we've had several open up here in, in the Augusta area, is Reiki, which finds Reiki. its roots in uh, Buddhism. Yes. Um, so what would you say to, uh, what, what is your thoughts on Reiki? Uh, explain first, if you can, what Reiki is, and then... I, I believe Reiki is the the healing energy from different types of rocks and crystals, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. well, um, and your own personal energy, your own personal energy passing yes, to another. Yes. I believe that is totally possible with the mindset that a person goes into it that is it's going to work. When your personal energy is going to help you. So if I came over and helped you with um, your lower back pain, so to speak, and I put my hands upon you and I say you're going to heal, I don't think that that transfer of energy is necessarily going to happen. Mm -hmm. But I do believe if you believe if you put rocks, crystals, whatever you may have upon you, and you say, this is going to help your energy help you, then yes, it will help you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Very cool. Very cool. Um, do you have any questions? Just, just um, kind of backtracking just a little bit, but... Other than the sure. Tibetan Book of the Dead, what are some of the sacred texts that Buddhists use and um, resources available for those that want to put their hands on some texts and read a little bit? Oh, sure. Um, Buddhism has the Paleon text. I personally read the Nakias. Um, the Nakias is the earliest um, writings of the Buddha, which is the closest to him. So, if you want to read what the actual Buddha said, I would go to the Nakias and kind of read that. That would be a, a good place to start. Um, I, I forgot the guy's name, but he actually writes the book. Um, I'll get it to you a little bit later, uh, Bishop. I'll show, um, shoot you a picture of it. Okay. Um, but it, it's a really good book to read. Um, the Paleo text is really good. Now, some of the other parts of the Paleo text actually goes into the rules, the regulations of Buddhism, the nuns, the monks, and things of that nature. So that's kind of, if you're starting out, I wouldn't read that at all. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a little over most people's heads, yes. Yes, yes. yes. And there are different philosophies within Buddhism that there are a bunch of books out, like the, the theory of nothingness, Mm -hmm. um, so that's really heavy if you want to get started with that I, I, if you're starting with Buddhism I wouldn't read that quite yet because um, it is really a heavy read <laughs> there was a, a book that I read um, years ago that really helped me uh, tremendously in understanding kind of a connection because we have a lot of Christians who are um, connected into Buddhism as well um, because Christianity and Buddhism I don't find to be at odds 
um, you know, one being a religious um, practice and one being a philosophy. And that was a book by uh, a book called Living Buddha, Living Christ, which is a very good book for those who, especially coming from a Christian perspective, <laughs> who would like to know more about the interconnection between Buddhism and, and Christianity. Yes, it is. And um, um, it's a very good book. He's got a follow-up book out called Going Home, Jesus and Buddha as Brothers that I'd like to pick up and read. I just saw that he's got that out. Um, but um, there's, um, uh, you know, Thomas Merton, um, who was a Roman Catholic uh, Cistercian monk, uh, considered himself a Christian Buddhist and um, you know practiced quite a bit of Buddhist philosophy intertwined in his Roman Catholicism and he's written a tremendous number of books as well um, um, that kind of speak to that melding of the two um, so for those that uh, would like more information from a Christian perspective that's a good place to start as well um, yes. understanding too I don't know how you believe but you could answer this uh, as well um, and that is um, um, what um, what is your th I couldn't see the book what, what was that book um, this one is um, Jesus and the Buddha the parallel sayings that's actually by Jack Cornfield uh huh uh huh and this one is the actual one you were talking about, the uh, Living Buddha. Living Christ. Living Christ yeah. by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. Good books. Good books. Very good, yes. Um, my thought um, is, you know, we have a lot of time in Christian scripture that of Jesus' life that's not recorded. Yes. And, but there are some historical records they kind of speak to his travel throughout the Eastern world um, as a young man prior to his what we call his earthly ministry at the age of 30. And so um, I believe that um, Jesus may have very well spent time with Buddhists and Hindus and other uh, Eastern religions prior to his earthly ministry, and that's why we see so much overlap. What is your thought on that? possible oh yeah oh yeah um there's actually text and everything that says that christ actually roamed the earth mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know is it possible that he talked um spoke with he did whatever with other you know no one knows what he did with those in those three days that he was gone mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so some people say that he went to the native americans the indigenous peoples of you know North America, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's where he they have some of these um, cave pictures of someone with a big halo around his head. Yeah, that, that he had talked to them. So yes, that's totally possible. Absolutely. One of the monasteries in Tibet. Um, I saw this in a documentary. Don't quote. I don't remember which one, so I can't quote it. But they yeah. had a mural of a image that looked similar to the depictions of Christ that we see um, speaking with, with a Buddha of some kind. So, I know it's not the um, Buddha, but a Buddha. Was um, that in Laos? It 
They said Tibet. Um, I don't... Lost Tibet, okay. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so. I have a book somewhere about that, but I can't find it right now. I'm, I have a library here, so... <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to find. <laughs> Spider says, does Buddhism get hate like some of the other religions do? I have not personally come across a lot of hate. Mm -hmm. I have come across a lot more, well, outside of the Christian faith, of the hardline Christian faith, I have not come across that. I have come across some of the the what would you call it right wing um, hardline people who say yes I'm going to go to hell because of being Buddhist mm -hmm. because the faith of God is not quite there so <laughs> I'm going to go to hell for that so sometimes yes well and I'm sorry that you've experienced that from our fundamentalist brothers and sisters who are not quite as enlightened as the rest of us. <laughs> um, and unfortunately that happens. But um, as you know, uh, Christians far too often are good at eating our own young. So, I mean, uh, that's not necessarily surprising that they would attack uh, other people of other faiths. If I do a meditation outside like in a public space, it's really, and I usually do it in robes, so that really becomes, um, I get a lot of pictures taken of me, so. <laughs> I bet. I bet. <laughs> if there was one thing, uh, I like to ask this of everyone who comes on the podcast, if there was one thing that you wish people understood about Buddhism, what would it be? The one thing about Buddhism I wish people would understand There's many forms of Buddhism. All forms of Buddhism are correct. Depending on your understanding, just like Christianity, all forms of Christianity are correct. With your understanding of what it is. And don't let people tell you any different. Basically. Very good. Very good. So, uh, I guess another question that's come to mind is um, just about all faiths have some sort of um, evangelism type process uh, to some degree or another. They, they try to bring others to their line of thinking. Um, what is Buddhism's form of evangelism? Or do they have one? I don't necessarily know if they have one. Um, it's like the Dalai Lama, when I saw him in Charlotte, North Carolina, he says that if you're a Christian and you're happy being a Christian, stay a Christian. I understand you want to come here and hear me talk, but if you're a Christian and you're happy at that, don't change anything. Believe in what you believe. Mm -hmm. um, if you're a Buddhist and you come here to listen to me, then I'm happy to receive you and here's my message. So, 
I would say that I'm not sure that they exactly have one. I will go out and talk to people about what do they believe. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Christians I will go out and talk to you about that only because I want to hear their experience within that. Because their experience is their experience. Yes. And within my experience, if you meditate, if you calm your mind, there's not much that you can't accomplish that you are physically able to accomplish. True. I think that's a very good answer. Well, thank you. <laughs> so you mentioned the Dalai Lama. That's a good, um, a, a good uh, question to ask. I guess is how do most Buddhists view the Dalai Lama? Um, <coughs> is he a continuation of of the line of Buddhas, or is he? He's, he's the continuation or the reincarnation of the Lama, yes. Um, he's the 14th in line, which he might be the last from what I understand. Is he actually open to interpretation of what your interpretation of um, reincarnation is? I think he, he, from a very young age, he has studied Buddhism um, very intensely. He knows the Nakias and, and the scriptures very, very well. And more importantly, his understanding of that is out of this world. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's your understanding of Buddhism and it's your understanding of and what you believe within that. So, yeah, he, he is a great character to meet and talk to, yes. I'd love to meet him someday. It's on my bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> I do watch many of his uh, live broadcasts uh, on Facebook. Oh, yes. um, he is an amazing individual, very wise, and um, very loving and caring towards others of uh, all faiths. I was, I was very fortunate uh, to have an audience with him. I didn't really get to talk to him. He put his hand on my head, which I hated, but... He blessed me, and there we go. Uh, that's about the only thing I had to do with him, but... <laughs> I understand. And I think it speaks very... I'm, I'm just impressed that um, at least the Tibetan stream had the forethought to think of a democratic process and in deciding on whether or not the Dalai Lama is actually that important of a figure to their life, that they're going to vote on whether the man should reincarnate or not. Yes. Um, once he dies, so. Yeah. And within the Mahayana traditions, which which the Tibetan Buddhist is, they actually have the um, the will, I guess you would say, on whether or not they will come back or not. Yeah. So, so they can yes, choose yeah. to stop reincarnating. Yes, sir. Yeah. But in this case, he decided to put that decision in the hands of the people on whether they felt the llamas were important or not. Yes. Because uh, yes. also, does I, I know they also have a second llama, which is the Panchen Lama. Doesn't he also reincarnate as well? Or Yes, he does. So. Yes, he does. Interesting. Uh, Spider wants to know who are some of the important figures in Buddhism? Um, the Buddha, <laughs> I would say. He, he's really important um, within Buddhism, the Buddha, yeah. Um, sorry, Spider. 
Um, there is one of his, his disciples that really teaches a lot, and I forgot his name. It starts with an A. Um, Admetto or um, Amadastro, something like that. Um, he did a lot of teachings after the, the Buddha had passed away. Um, and he, he was actually the one that the Buddha had said um, when right before he died not to let them make a stupa of the Buddha and elevate him to that uh, deity level. Uh, Spider would like to know also um, about robes. Is there a certain dress for women versus men? A lot of traditions, yes. Um, if you go to Plum Village, which is the home of Thich Nhat Hanh, they do actually have different types of robes for the men and the women, for the nuns and for the monks. Um, within Chan, no. The um, monks and the nuns would actually wear the same robes. Very cool. Now, they do have different robes for laity and for the monastic um, people. And Spider wants to know if it's required that monks be bald. Actually, no. Um, if you look at some of Stephen Batchelor's work, um, The Atheist Buddhist, the reason that he says that the Buddha came about was to change the caste system within India. And the reason that you shaved your head was because your hairdo was actually depicting upon how rich or how poor you were. So if you actually had a really, really good hairdo, you were actually very rich. So if you shaved your head, it doesn't matter what class you're coming from, doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, you had the same hair. Is it required? Some traditions, absolutely, you shave your head. The Shaolin tradition, yes. Being old, yes. <laughs> Age takes care of it for you, yes. That's right. <laughs> well, one last question. Um, yes, sir. That I had, and it just left my head, so give me a second to remember it again. Um, because we were talking about um, important figures in uh, Buddhism, and you mentioned that Buddha didn't want to be elevated to a, kind of a deity. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we see a lot of, um, of uh, practitioners of Buddhism who will have statues of Buddha, representations of Buddha in their homes. Yes. What what role does that play? Because for a lot of people in religious faith, that kind of means that he's a deity. Well. Let's, let's walk around here for just a second. Sure. Right, so, um, when you look at Buddha, mm -hmm. it's, it's a reputation of Buddha. Yes. Does it mean that he's a deity? In my mind, not so much. No. Not so much, right? So, in looking at the Buddha, it reminds us that the teachings of the Buddha, not necessarily that he's a, a deity within Buddhism, mm -hmm. but... It represents and reminds the mind that yes, it is Buddha. It is the representation of him and within his teachings of him. So it's like the cross. You don't worship the cross, but the cross is a reminder that Christ actually died for you. Yes. Right? So Buddha, in my view, the statue of Buddha is a reminder to be humble, 
um, take your precepts uh, seriously and to tamp that ego down. I'll ask one last question because I, I, I opened the door and I have to. So you showed us the various Buddhas you have. Some are fat, some are thin, some are tall, some are short. Is there a um, a purpose to the various different representations of Buddha? Um, and, and in a lot of traditions there are. And within like the Hindu tradition, you know the you see that kind of fat hotel, uh, that fat Buddha all around the place. Yes. He has his hands up and he has the really fat belly. Yes. That is the, the hotel Buddha, which is the Buddha of small children, who, when small children come up, he, he takes care of them, and he's the protector of children. Mm-hmm. There's only one Buddha yes. within Buddhist traditions, and it reminds us that Buddha can come in all shapes and sizes. So that wisdom can be imparted to just about anyone. Yes, exactly. Wonderful. Well, Trotty, thank you so much. We will have a part two with you on Buddhism. I'm sure this has inspired quite a few questions that we've not received tonight, but uh, people will think about it, and we'll come back and have a part two. We'll have you on in a few weeks uh, to speak about Satanism, too, uh, and your history and past in that and what that means. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, And uh, I want to thank you for all that you do in the medical community and for all that you've done to teach us tonight about uh, the great wisdom of Buddhism and um, I will say to you namaste my friend namaste Namaste. thank you Um, and I hope that you all will join us uh, next week for our next podcast Um, I am drawing a blank at the moment as to who our uh, our guest is next week Um, but we will have uh, another informative um, broadcast for you from expanding your faith. Uh, we're speaking about voodoo next week uh, with Haitian uh, Haitian voodoo uh, priest. And so I hope you'll join us uh, again for that uh, wonderful broadcast. From Father Matt and myself and Trotty, have a great evening. <laughs>